Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Calmversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Calmversants are Helena and Sinead, also known as Watson. I've interviewed them both before. They are both detransitioners, that is, they are female, and they decided to go down a transition path, a medical transition path, and then they turned around because that was not working for them. They've also been very vocal and I would say outspoken, but maybe that's not the correct term, but very detailed in their standing up on principle for what they believe is an underrepresented impact of the medical industry's treatment of young females and young males within the transgender affirmative care model. In this conversation, we kind of shoot the breeze and speak about concerns, present and perennial. (laughs) And I think overall, we just enjoy each other's company. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you guys bask in our mutual glow. Here's Sinead and Helena. So um, what would you, what's the proper um, group signifier? Ladies, guys, ladies, (laughs) gals, people, folk? Your highnesses. Your heinesy, your heinies. Um, what would you like to cover? Um, have you spoken together? You both are on Not- kind of the same level of power, Twitter power. Like you're, you're, you're powerful individuals taken together. Um, you are powerful. We've like chatted briefly in messages and things like that, but we've never sat and yeah. done like a Zoom mm-hmm. chat or anything like that. Yeah. I'm a fan though, Helena, so it's nice to find I'm, you face-to-face. <laughs> I was about to say, I'm a fan of yours. You've got good tweets. When I'm sober, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what do you think is something topical that you have, either of you, what have you been contemplating now or trying to figure out how to communicate? Hmm. Um, I've not really decided if there's anything I'm going to say about it, but I'm very gleefully watching the whole Stonewall thing unfolding just now. I don't know if you've been keeping on top of that. I just read an article about it today, but I don't really know what all happened. Mm. It's basically um, Stonewall are now um, losing a lot of power, and even their founders, not all of them, but some of their founders are coming out and saying, you've betrayed the original message. Um, and people are saying, oh, it's because you hate LGBT people. And it's like, no, LGB people are the ones criticizing you. Because yeah. for some reason, I don't know how long they're saying it's been happening for, but for a while now, you're basically prioritizing the needs of the T's over the LGBs. And it's the same where, you know, if you've got a lesbian saying that she won't sleep with a trans woman because she's not attracted to biological males, Stonewall will be like, that's a transphobic opinion. It's like no, that's a homophobic opinion, you know. So they've they've lost a lot of favor even among their own people, I suppose. So aren't people like disassociating with them or something? That that's what I saw something about. Yeah, like a lot of the organizations that were working with Stonewall um, are say I don't know if they're actually going to do it, but there are talks that they're basically going to be cutting off contact with Stonewall and stop using their materials and things like that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's really good news. I mean, it's sad for what Stonewall used to be. Yeah. But it's really, really good news for what it's become. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you have any thoughts? Some people talk about a backlash to the trans movement that will come after the L and the G and the B in that set. Do you think that that is likely is it coming is it uh, to be avoided and um 
how do you think it's going to pan out if there is a backlash as we're kind of seeing, but I, I honestly think there will be a backlash just because you have kind of, um, you have this new version of the LGBT rights movement that's using very similar symbols, very similar arguments, similar words to promulgate their new message. And there's a lot of people who they were already very skeptical of the gay rights movement to begin with. But that was, I think, a smaller amount of people. But now there's kind of a lot of people who, at least this is what I'm seeing, where they like they see what's going on with the trans movement and the queer movement and stuff like that. And they're I feel like some people are thinking people are right to be skeptical of the whole thing all along. I personally don't think it's that simple, but I do think that that's kind of in the minds of some people. And I do see those kinds of thoughts bouncing around on the internet. Do you mean specifically a pushback against the trans movement, not the LGBTQ+, but just against the trans movement? Well, will there be a spillover from the trans movement that will negatively impact the gays, lesbians, and bisexual communities? I think so, because I think so, because a lot of people like they're not familiar with the intricacies of this like intra community discourse. So they'll just say, oh, the people with the rainbow flags are the ones causing this huge problem in our society. So the whole rainbow gay rights movement all along has led up to this. This is toxic. Let's throw it all out. And and there's also while the trans movement is harmful to gays and lesbians in reality. At the same time, there's all of this like anti-straight language that bounces around from these same quarters. And I think people who they're, like I said, they're not familiar with the nuances of the inter-community discourse. They will just say, okay, the rainbow queer people are talking shit about straight people all the time. Um, And so I think there will be a reaction to that. And I think we're kind of already seeing it. Like, the super straight thing was kind of just a very mild version of it, but I don't know. I think there'll be a a backlash, because I think people are probably not going to put up with this for very much longer. I think as well, because it is very much harming the progress that gays and lesbians made, because when gays and lesbians were fighting for gay rights, they weren't saying, you know, you need to sleep with me, or if you don't sleep with me, you're homophobic, and things like that. And yeah. so gradually over time, you know, they got gay marriage, that's grand, um, and they made strides. And now you've got, not all of them, but you've got certain pro-trans groups that would say, if you call yourself, for example, a gay man, but you wouldn't date a trans man, then that's problematic and that's transphobic. And because the T is the LGBTQA blah, 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 plus, I think a lot of people are thinking, that's not just the issue with the T, that's the whole group. And it's yeah. pissing off and causing LGBs to become really resentful. Because it's it's completely it's starting to very gradually erase all the progress that the LGBs made. And I think um, I would need to look it up to be certain, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that like acceptance and things like that of LGBT groups exactly. has started to go down since the T has yeah. become very outspoken which doesn't surprise me at all yeah yeah which i think that's probably why it's important for lgbs to clarify to people how this is all harming you as well that you're not just kind of all part of the same lgbt soup and that actually it's it's really at the end of the day harming you Mm -hmm. i mean are either of you lgb nope i'm s Oh, you're the special one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, well, see, because you aren't, and you're like, you're obviously watching it happening. Um, maybe you've got LGB loved ones and things like that. But as people that mm-hmm. aren't specifically within the group, but watching it happen, um, what do you think would be better for people that are LGBT as well? Because obviously you've got the, the T's that are really sick of the other T's as well. I mean, what do you think would be. Um, the most reasonable reaction to the pushback? I think a principled stand for children would go a whole long way. And that would actually cement, um, if there's any association in the minds of average people or sub-average people, um, people who are 
not as knowledgeable of homosexuals, don't have any connection with them or, you know, that they know of. Uh, there might be some connection in their mind between pedophilia and homosexuality. I'm not saying I'm not saying that, but in their minds, there might be. And the yeah. trans movement and the way that it's affecting, well, the radical trans rights movement, as it is being pushed by the Tumbleristas and the Twitterverse, and then also all these corporations, etc., that they are going after children and using yeah. the rainbow flag to do that will uh, – if, if gays and lesbians especially can stand up and say, we're going to protect. We're going to protect children. Yeah. Then, then that will yeah. really cement them as uh, functional and, and uh, good members of society. I think. Well, that's yeah. one of the things that's gotten the LGB alliance into a lot of trouble because they have come out and said, you know – the problem with the trans movement is that at its core, it's actually homophobic because when you see, for an example, an effeminate little boy, and there was a story about this recently on, I think this morning, did you see it, where it was the four-year-old boy um, whose parents were saying he was a girl because he hated, um, no, in fact, it was, sorry, excuse me, it was the other way around, it was a little girl who, um, because she didn't like pigtails and because she didn't like dresses, when she was like two and a half years old. So we're talking about a baby, basically. Mm -hmm. And didn't like the pigtails and didn't like her, her dresses. And now this child is four years old and is being celebrated on places like This Morning and is being celebrated by trans groups as this beautiful, brave trans child. Sure. And a lot of people, including the LGB Alliance, have said, what if, what if she's not trans? You know, what if she happens to be gender non-conforming or what if like in many cases she would grow up and turn out to be gay because we spoke about this last time Benjamin um a lot of the studies that were done by was it Dr Jack Drescher found that the vast majority of these young children who struggle with gender issues by the time they hit puberty they naturally grow out of it and a lot of them turn out to be gay yeah so yeah it's like 80 plus percent yeah, like the vast majority of them. And that really doesn't surprise me. And I don't think it would surprise most people. And it's like, yeah, because you know the old joke where if you've got an effeminate little boy, you're like, oh, God, my son's gay. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, well, there's there's a little bit of truth to that, apparently, if that's what's happening with these kids. And so that's why I can see the accusation that pro-trans lobbies are basically just very homophobic. I think that... You made me think of something. So I also saw it was like a tweet with a video of some little boy. It was a little boy this time. And the parents were saying that sense. Well, this little boy likes girl things that make like they literally say that since this little boy likes girl things that makes him a trans girl. But in this video, the parents are using a lot of like very religious language. And so it kind of fits in with some other families that you can see if you've spent enough time in like the child transition rabbit hole, where there's actually a lot of parents who the trajectory of their story is basically, you know, they're very religious, very strict about gender roles. They have a son who's effeminate. They have this struggle for the first few years where they try to force him to be masculine. They try to force him to be more like a boy in the way that they see. And then they, they have to, accept that he's not a boy he's a trans was, girl was this the child that there were stories that the mom had said that she tried to beat the gay out of him at some point that's another one uh, that's that a different another? one but there's another one okay oh, i don't know if that's the same one but that's what i'm talking about these kinds of families these kinds of people and i think since we were talking about kind of like a, a possibility for a reactionary um backlash against the LGBT movement that includes gay people. I just wonder how how does that come into the into play when you think about, I guess, people who are more homophobic having a backlash against the LGBT movement when there are so transitioning their kids who are transitioning their kids because they're gay and because they're extremely I guess, socially conservative to a point where they would be willing to basically abuse their child. And not um, even gay, so just like, gender nonconforming. Yeah, gender nonconforming. But I feel like that might be a hard pill to swallow for that reactionary backlash crowd. I mean, it really shouldn't surprise too many people because if you speak to 
the the typical sort of progressive LGBTQ plus activist, and they'll say, you know, that doesn't make any sense because people that are homophobic are going to be transphobic as well. It's like, well, no, this has been happening for a long time. There are countries in the Middle East where it's illegal mm-hmm. to be gay, but they will mm-hmm. pay for your transition. Like so, exactly. There's there's absolutely it's completely possible for someone to hate gay people but think transition is fine and I think we're seeing it in these parents yeah yeah I think so I think so it makes me wonder if the framing of anti-gay sentiment or at least gay resistant sentiment uh, framing that as homophobia works on one level when you're talking about uh, young men going around beating up other young men uh, for being gay, you know, the, the yeah. F-A-G-G-O-T, you know, throwing that around. There's that level of it. But there might be some sort of th- something that we've m- misunderstood about some sort of deep biological preference to have a child that will create more ch- children. And yeah. to misconstrue that just as homophobia is kind of missing the picture of the desires for the parents to you know, propagate their line, which is really, really deep, but also having a picture of a fulfilling life that includes children that they themselves, by necessity or by culture, have accepted and then followed through on in order to have the kid. Uh, there might be to, – to just call that homophobia might be missing out on some really deep – forces psychological forces going on yeah i completely agree sometimes you don't really know what word to use but you just eloquently laid it out for us i think that probably does play a part but it's just interesting if that does play a part how ironic it is that medical transition will make those kids infertile exactly (laughs) that's a good point that's a really good point and that yeah, there's there's all these – the trans issue is very r- rich in uh, questions, um, not just because individuals on whatever timeline they decide to tr- uh, transition, what, whatever reason they transition, and then the social issues around that. And then with this whole – and I'm sorry to say this. I have to say this. With this entire fiction of trans kid, the trans kid, whatever that means – Yeah. That comes along and then you get these parents involved in it and the loops of logic and then all these doctors and psychologists that are wetting, they're, they're actually going out there pouring hot wax on the slope and pushing families down this slope, yeah. uh, the slippery slope. Um, that, that entire thing to try to slow that down and try to resist that. And then, you, of course, we, we've all met the, the, uh, the pushback, the trans... Uh, uh, transphobia uh, is labeled anybody that wants to slow that stuff down. But you two are living examples of people who would have benefited from certain forms of friction. Maybe you wouldn't have accepted it, though, because you're both very willful individuals. <laughs> well, I mean, we are, I, but I don't know. Yeah. I feel like the medical, like, what is the purpose of medicine? Is it to just give people what they want or is it to give them evidence based? care i guess so it's like even if i had protested i think if i had if my practitioner said listen no you don't fit you don't fit the qualifications for this treatment because xyz so we're just not going to give it to you i think that would have in the long run probably helped me out in the end although who knows maybe i would have like found testosterone online or something like that literally who knows but I think that there's got to be some kind of middle ground between walk in and half an hour later I have my prescription and <laughs> buying testosterone online. Like there's got to be some kind of middle ground with pushback. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a window and it will probably change for every individual person. But I've always said that my window was uh, the year I had the year waiting list. And I think if I had seen by a non-affirming therapist during that time who'd you know, properly assess me. No. I, I do think that there is a good chance that that would have gotten through to me. But by the time you get to the clinic and they're like, you know, looking at this, you you qualify, so we're going to give you the diagnosis and um, you know, we're going to put you uh, on the prescription of testosterone. By the time you get to that stage, it's going to be very difficult to convince someone they're going down the wrong path, especially because yeah. they can say, well, I know I'm not because the doctors agree with me. 
Like that's a massive, like when parents are saying, you know, I'm trying to talk to my kid, but they're being affirmed at school, they're being affirmed by their friends or their co-workers and by medical professionals in the kid's yeah. head they're, well, what the fuck does my mum and dad know? Look what my GP saying or look what this professional at the clinic saying. It's really hard to come back when you're at that level of affirmation from those people. Yeah. And that's what makes it so hard, right? Like I always kind of, I kind of see the parent's position and obviously I don't completely understand it because I've never been a parent, much less a parent in this situation. But I kind of see like the correct path that parents need to take when it comes to this as like, like some kind of emotional jujitsu where you can't just outright try to change your child's mind, but you have to, I don't know, you have to kind of support certain things and push certain levers that hopefully will keep that relationship intact and not let them get completely consumed by the Mm -hmm. affirmative group. But it also comes down to the individual kid because it's very easy to say, you know, well, you need to talk to your kid and ask them what's been going on. It's easy for us to say that, but um, for Mm -hmm. a parent to sit down with a particularly rebellious child and say, what's been going on with you? What's been happening? Do you think that kid's going to tell them the truth? You know, yeah. like, there's a yeah. massive chance they won't, especially if they're in their early teens where they hate their parents. You know, we were all yeah. there. Um, yeah. So I don't know, when I get messages from parents and they're like, what do I do? It's horrible to say this, but my answer is I don't know what to tell you. I, I really yeah. don't. It's such a yeah. horrible, difficult situation. And... Um, you should be able to go and find a professional, but obviously the professionals who are affirming are the ones doing the harm here. So yeah. parents are in such a horrible situation, and I really don't envy them at this stage. Yeah, most uh, professionals are extremely compromised. Like I remember um, I wanted to see a therapist when I was in high school, and I found out that our school had a psychologist. And so I had already come out to my mom at this point and I told her that I wanted to see a therapist and she was like oh good good that's really good like now that I look back on it she was probably thinking that it's such a good thing because I'm going to work out my gender stuff but then my therapist had me ask my mom to come in for a session and we both cornered her about why she's so transphobic that she won't let me transition Oh God. so that's that's what parents are going through hmm. right now I mean my my mum didn't really experience anything quite that bad because I was an adult when I transitioned, but I've, I found out years after the fact, um, so I didn't know this at the time, but, but while I was transitioning, my mum, my sister and my brother-in-law went to a support group at my gender clinic for oh, wow. the fam- family members of people transitioning. And they were going there because they had questions, and their questions were, is it normal for my daughter to be a perfectly... Um, well as normal as you can be as a teenager but basically not have ever experienced gender dysphoria or spoken about it in your in childhood and adolescence but then have the sudden desire to transition at like 20 years old and my mum and both my sister um, were like they were the minute they realized we were there to question they put the walls up they were not interested um, in having that conversation And so they they left. They never went back. My sister was kicked out of a support group for being transphobic, for saying she didn't think that her sister was really trans. So, you know, for families, whether it's parents or siblings or children or partners, you think going to these support groups are going to give you some comfort. But if you don't affirm and play along with it, the chances are Mm -hmm. you're just insulted and kicked out if you're not bullied out on your own. Yeah, that's... Sorry. No, you go on. Um, I was just going to say, I I don't know, I feel so much sympathy for a lot of these parents. And it's complicated because obviously, like, my parents could have done a lot of things differently, whatever. But I do feel so much sympathy for them. And that's kind of why, despite the fact that, obviously, there's no silver bullet that is just going to help every family and make their kids stop being crazy like I was. Um, I do try to give a little bit of advice because I feel like there are some principles that you can follow that, like I try to stress, they might not result in the outcome that you want, but it might be like damage control, harm reduction, and kind of help parents to start thinking about what their kids are going through in a little bit of a different way. Because I think a lot of parents, they just think, you know, oh, if I just, you know, 
argue with my kid or isolate them or I don't know, all sorts of stuff that they think might be the right option, but they just don't really understand what all they're up against. So I feel like there are principles that parents can follow. You both have been contacted and probably frequently contacted by parents in this particular situation and maybe even professionals too. Um, But what about gender questioning youth? Have you been contacted um, or interacted with them uh, and uh, given any advice or seen any of your advice take advice, take root? I have. Yeah. Um, mostly anonymous people like on curious cat every once in a while I'll get a message from someone. Um, and it's usually kind of someone who's, they're not really like I was when I was, um, intending on transitioning because when I was intending on transitioning, I would have never looked at somebody's account like mine. I would have never interacted with the idea of detransition or radical feminism or gender critical feminism. I would have like, that would have been cancerous radiation to me i wouldn't have ever looked at it so just from that standpoint it's kind of hard for me to give good advice because that's just this person's in a completely different situation than i was um but i don't know i kind of what i usually tell them is just to do some analysis on what the gender dysphoria or the desire to transition or the focus on their body What purpose is that serving them? Because usually, even if you are different, I feel like a lot of the times complexes like this or obsessions like this, they're usually developed in a way to manage some kind of other emotion or stress in life. Um, So I kind of try to get them to look at it that way. But that's also very hard. I feel like it does help to have a therapist in this situation because you can have someone kind of guide you through this exploration. But a lot of people don't have that, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never been contacted since detransition by um, like a, a questioning youth, um, but I was online while I was a trans man, um, and I was contacted all the time there. But I was um, I've spoken about this before. I was like a, a true scum trans person, so mm-hmm. I I was very vocal about um, my opposition to the transition of children, and I used to get messages from people who were you know, 14, 15, and they were like, I'm a very mature 14 and 15 year old. And why can't I transition now? Why do I need to wait to 16? Or in some places, like, why do I have to wait till I'm 18? I know this is what I I want. And I would sit and I'd talk to them and I'd be like, well, you know, how long have you had dysphoria for? And they'd be like, my entire life. I'm like, okay, well, when did it manifest? And I'm like, oh, like last year. Um, And then like you sit and you use certain words that very, very gradually makes them bring out the honesty and most of the time yeah there was probably only one person that contacted me where um he he wanted to transition to be a woman and again like he could have been lying let's assume that he wasn't and said that um he had been hospitalized repeatedly between the ages of seven and 12 for basically trying to castrate himself and like um do terrible things between his legs and i was like okay holy shit i'm not qualified to have this conversation but you know, if anyone's got a very severe case of gender dysphoria, maybe this kid or, or maybe something else terrible like sexual abuse has happened, I'm yeah. not going to continue to interact with this person because it's, it's a bit too much. But most of the times it was just it was teenage girls who were reaching out to a trans man because they wanted to be a trans man. Um, and they were like, I need you to tell me that I'm right. And I need you to tell me after you listen to my story that I should be able to transition at 14 or 15. And my answer yeah. was always no. And it made me very unpopular. But I mean, if you actually sat down and spoke to them, most of the time it was because a bunch of their friends at school had come out as trans or non-binary. Um, or it was because they'd found things online and it came very suddenly. It's not normal for gender dysphoria to develop out of nowhere at 14, 15. Or yeah. in, in my case, even later than that. And for some reason... People are going to gender clinics. They are telling. I told my gender clinic, I did not have dysphoria as a child. I didn't have dysphoria in my early teens, and they're like, "Okay, well, do you know what testosterone is going to do to you?" I was like, "Oh, yeah. fuck! That, that was easier than I thought it would be." You know, um, so we need that back. We need back 
the rule that is, look, if you have just suddenly developed gender dysphoria at a later age, we're going to put transition aside for a moment and we're going to talk about what's been going on with you and we're going to talk about what's been happening with you in your life and then maybe that will answer some questions for us. And, you know, going back to what you were saying with... there, I feel like there are a lot of people who have had gender dysphoria or something resembling it for their entire lives or since they were little kids. And sometimes it's even, you know, very severe sounding. Like like this kid who was trying to castrate himself as a child. And that just makes me think that in situations like that, we should have even more caution. I think it's kind of faulty to think that, oh, just because someone is more obviously dysfunctional, more obviously suffering, that that is a greater argument for subjecting them to these experimental medical procedures that have no proof in actually improving their condition. Mm-hmm. Because I've just known personally so many people who experienced sexual abuse and severe sexual trauma as children or as um, very young adolescents. And because of this, they develop this extreme complex about their bodies and their sexuality and their biological sex. And that eventually led to them developing gender dysphoria. And yeah, it's like those people... Like, they need real help, not transition. Um, So, yeah, it does. Obviously, when someone's just coming up out of the blue like I did and just randomly deciding that they're going to be trans, like, that's a huge red flag. But I also think the more severe childhood gender dysphoria cases are a red flag, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's really dramatically changed because if you go back to some point in the past and there's a little boy, like, I mean, a very little boy or a very little girl, that has an issue with their genitals, what's mm-hmm. the first thought that would come to you? You don't even need to be a professional. Your first first thought is, has this child been sexually assaulted or been molested? Yeah. So yeah. we need to investigate that. And if that's the case, find out who, if it's happening at home, get them out of the house and things like that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now, for some reason, if a little boy says, I hate my penis, or a little girl says, I hate my vagina, we're like, oh my God, you have a trans child. And that yeah. is so, so, so dark that it's yeah. difficult. To, to really stress to people how dangerous that is. Because now you don't have a child, you have an extremely vulnerable, possibly victimised, traumatised child. And mm-hmm. you're going to put them down another path that may victimise and traumatise them. Yeah, It's so, it's medical malpractice at the highest order. And I think that's why things like the Kira Bell case happened, where when, as children, people will push back against it. Yeah. Did you guys yeah. see that Blue's Clues? cartoon where they had the uh, little teddy bear with the mastectomy mise- scars. I thought yeah. it was a beaver. Or a beaver, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, don't know what, yeah. I don't know what the fuck it was supposed to be, but I remember looking at it like, my scars aren't that small and cute. Like, I got salty <laughs> as hell when I was watching it. <laughs> so it's all well and good for you to put these cute little scars on this beaver or bunny or whatever the hell it was, but unfortunately most of the time that's not what they look like. You both spend you both spend <laughs> a lot of time talking about transition and detransition. Um, do you have any positive uh, thoughts on uh, gender or making peace with being a woman, or uh, what's going on with the conception of what it is to be female? Are you guys over even thinking about that? You think about it a lot in the negative sense. Do you think about it positively? I don't even really think about it in the negative sense anymore. Like. I feel like I've made peace with being a woman quite a long time ago. I think actually I made peace with being a woman pretty much as soon as I made the decision to detransition. Like just something kind of snapped in me that was like, this was the completely wrong path. I fucked up. I'm a girl. Like that, that's kind of what I thought to myself. And ever since then, like my biggest struggle in the beginning was feeling like I was a normal girl. Like it wasn't feeling like I wasn't a girl. It was like, okay, now I'm, I know I'm a girl and I'm fine with that. But did I ruin my life? Did I ruin my appearance? Did I, you know, just mess myself up mentally to the point where I can't return? That kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you were to say, Sinead, do you enjoy being a woman? I would say no, but I don't not enjoy it anymore either. Like I don't see it as a good or a bad thing. It's just, yeah, what I am, you know. So, I mean, for me, I've, 
I, I say this to detransitioners when they message me as well. It's like you're not waiting for the moment that being a woman suddenly becomes this amazing thing to you. You're waiting for the moment where being a woman doesn't make you feel disgusting anymore. It's two very different yeah. things. So I don't think that being a woman is this beautiful, amazing thing. But I also don't think it's this disgusting thing anymore, which is yeah. the progress I needed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think that's the balanced and healthy way to be. Because I just, like, obviously there are great things about being a woman. You know, we are capable of giving life and female beauty is very mm -hmm. special. But, yeah, I, I don't sit around thinking how thankful I am to be a woman. But like you said, I don't hate it in, anymore either. So I think that's probably the best way to be. I, How much do you love being a man, Benjamin? Um, well, I, I love women, so that's, that's a part of my manhood. <laughs> I find that enjoyable. <laughs> uh, in the special way that I uh, love uh, the opposite sex. I, I've just, I've been doing kind of a mini-series. Well, actually, I've been doing a pretty long series on feminism, and uh, I've been speaking with a lot of different feminist activists and feminism is just such a huge umbrella and it's it's you know the name makes it seem like it's representing all of womankind but most women don't ascribe to it those who do ascribe to it there's so many different versions of it and yeah. one theme that i'm looking with the radical and gender critical feminists is that they are defending womanhood in society and you know how females are treated by men or by society. And they have these terms about patriarchy and these conceptions of how society treats women. And they're working on that, that external, uh, what it means to be a woman. But both of your genders, uh, both of yours gender journey was, and it seems like what you were just talking about is wrestling with the internal thing. So I was just wondering, giving uh, some you know, co compare and contrasting the uh, desire to make life better for women or, and whatever that actually means versus the desire to not be a woman or to be a woman. And I guess the question is, to what degree did society impose upon you that negative feeling of what a woman is? And when did you, you let know? society not dictate that to you anymore? This might upset a lot of people, but I'm just speaking for myself, nobody else. But I feel like because my gender dysphoria, whatever you want to call it, or the, the state of me interpreting my emotional distress through the lens of it's my sex that's the problem, um, that kind of originated in this like social justice way of thinking. Like I, I adopted the social justice oppression hierarchy way of thinking long before I started developing my gender dysphoria and the first thing led to the next. And so looking back on it, I do kind of feel like adopting the belief that women are so oppressed, it sucks to be a woman, men are out to get you, men want to rape you, men want to kidnap you, men want to do this and this and that, seeing just constant posts you know on tumblr of being like oh here's how to you know here's how to walk at night so you don't get raped by a man or something like that and well i do think that obviously women do need to protect ourselves because there are predatory men out there and we women usually are at a physical disadvantage i still think this constant messaging about how oppressed women are um gave me the furthered my impression that it was my sex that was the problem and that men are so privileged men have it so good men get to be so free men get to be so careless men get to they're just happy all the time puberty for men is awesome they just compare dick sizes while we have to deal with periods <laughs> like just painting this picture of men's life being awesome all while ironically at the meantime my younger brother is having the most shit storm awful tragedy of a puberty <laughs> that i've ever witnessed um yeah, I think it painted this false reality in my mind that everything for men is always good. All men are happy. All men are strong. All men are confident. And everything for women is always bad. And you have to try so hard to be confident. And you have to be a rebel and a radical to be strong and confident as a woman. I just didn't want to put in all of this perceived effort that I thought I would have to have in order to build some kind of house of cards confidence as a woman i just wanted to get the 
you know, the, the birthright to confidence as a man. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, I largely agree with you, Helena, but not necessarily on that. I didn't get that from uh, reading posts and stuff like online, though that would later mm-hmm. exacerbate it. For me, it was more um, just sh- really shitty experiences with men in the real world. Yeah, and then yeah. I went and like told you know, my, my female friends about it or even uh, women in my family and they were like, welcome to being a woman, we all need to deal with it. And I was just like, yeah. well, do you know what? I don't want to fucking deal with it. Yeah. And I think like there's like what woman hasn't experienced that at some point and obviously the vast majority of them don't go to the extreme lengths that I did. But I think it was because while I had those experiences in my head, I then also found what you were talking about online. But on top yeah. of that, also found out found the trans material where it was like look if you don't like having boobs and you don't like being a woman you don't like looking like a woman it's not because you're dealing with a lot of complicated issues it's actually just because you're trans and that made sense to me at the time um so yeah i think the the role of social media and the internet in places like tumblr because geez how many young lives did tumblr destroy i know Um, and, and sites like that, I mean, because you think, oh, it's just the kids reading some posts online, but no, they, they read that, they internalise it, it shapes who they are, and yeah. it can make them make life-altering decisions, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which has evidently happened with a plethora mm-hmm. of young so-called gender dysphoric kids, but they probably don't have gender dysphoria. They probably yeah. have a whole bunch of other stuff going on, and then the internet has forced them to self-diagnose, and then yeah. they go to the gender clinics and the clinic is like, yeah, you have gender dysphoria. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I didn't mean to insinuate that women don't have an especially hard time in many areas because, yeah, we definitely do. Um, but I just had this completely warped perception of how men felt in the world. I, I just literally thought, like, I would, I remember I would just watch boys in my class and like every time they would laugh or something I'd be like I wish I could laugh if I was a boy I could laugh <laughs> I, was, I was so like depressed and fucked up <laughs> I, I had this like <laughs> I had this this way of looking at the world that I mean yeah I've had a lot of shitty female specific experiences mostly around like you know having an eating disorder and just being so obsessed with my body from a really young age that I feel like Obviously, there's some men who deal with that, but that's it's pretty female specific most of the time. But yeah, just Tumblr definitely messed me up. And I think another thing that I don't hear talked about a lot um, is on Tumblr, almost everybody is trans identified in some way. So all of the biological females are the men of Tumblr and all of the biological men are the females of Tumblr. So I would see these trans women talking about their gender euphoria and how much they love their like knee high socks and how much they like love being sexualized and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. I would look at that and think that that was what it's like to be confident and happy as a woman but I didn't experience that. I didn't have gender euphoria. I didn't like to look at my butt in the mirror while wearing knee highs. Like that would, that was not my experience. So I think in a way I kind of, I thought that, Oh, I'm not a woman because I'm not one of these people. Obviously Hmm. I was extremely online, but this is how a lot of these kids are. So that ties into a conversation I had just like a couple of nights ago where um, occasionally, because I know I am followed by a lot of radical feminists, and I, I really like a lot of them. We've had some interesting yeah. conversations, but sometimes I like to put out a, a thread just to see how they'll react to it. And the one I chose to do recently was, um, can trans women experience misogyny? Um, you can imagine how that was responded to, but I thought that it was an interesting conversation. Um, and then there's a, a very lovely trans woman who, not trans woman, radical feminist. That's a Freudian slip that will piss a lot of people off. <laughs> Um, this radical feminist messaged me and we had this conversation and she was like do you know who uh, Paris Lease is and I was like I've heard the name but you'll need to explain and she sent me an article and it's a trans woman um, and she passes very well she looks like a very conventionally attractive woman but the, the thing is she has stated multiple times that she loves being catcalled she loves being sexually harassed she loves being objectified because it makes her feel sexy and validates her as a woman um, 
<coughs> so the big the, the reason why so many people were pissed off by my thread was they were like, look, the misogyny you're wondering if trans women can experience, they don't experience it as misogyny, they experience it as validating and they enjoy it. And I was mm-hmm. like, but you're, you're also falling into the problem of you're assuming that all trans women think that way. Like, what if not all of them do? So we had this big back and forth where it was, it was productive. Like, don't get me wrong, no one was name-calling or being nasty or anything. We were having a very interesting conversation. But it really boils down to that idea of gender euphoria. I don't know any biological women that stand in front of the mirror naked and enjoy themselves. We don't do it, you know. Um, but you, it's not hard to find those stories from trans women, um, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah, there's. And even uh, when we do, I. Whoops. I was just going to say, I think even when we do, I mean, obviously, as a woman, sometimes you do stand in the mirror and you're like, "Damn, I look cute," but. I mean, at least I do sometimes. Well, but, isn't that what the um, selfie is for? They can just yeah, post that. exactly. Yeah, so you do you do appreciate your appearance, but it's very because I know a lot of trans women like they will try to equate it. They'll say like, "Oh, well, women take selfies, and women, you know, look at themselves in the mirror and they think they're cute." So that's just what I'm doing when there's, it's so clearly more of like a. There's a difference between looking in the mirror and going, "I'm cute," and looking in the mirror and becoming aroused. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there is a blind spot that I need to uh, surface in my series on gender, sexuality, transition, etc., where I kind of have overlooked male sexuality and speaking, no offense, but speaking to a lot of feminists, gender critical or radical, uh, you don't get a good... uh, view on what male sexuality is. Uh, I think there's more room for men to talk about that and also to talk about how strong it is, how it concentrates and objectifies, and that's just kind of how it operates. And then that kind of goes to a form of patriarchy, a very very specific form of patriarchy, just being principles of honor and self-control and how those rigid uh, kind of values are there because of the way in which male attention and drive and including sexuality, it needs, uh, because it's so strong, it needs a very firm foundation on, on which to, to operate. So the way in which a biological male, even, even James Cantor, uh, who say this, he's a sex researcher. He says that the way in which that, a that a male, even after surgery, uh, becoming a trans woman gets aroused is still the way that the blood flows and the way that the brain operates is still the male pattern and the way that women's sexuality operates it's it's really different the way that um, it, it permeates things it's not it's more diffuse it's more fluid um, whereas male are, are very uh, very directed and that's where the cat call comes from if you want to know where the cat call comes from you, you, you look at the biological you know things that are fueling that i'm not excusing the cat call i'm just saying if you want to understand what it's from and once you start to understand that it's not from this social structure it's from this biological structure we can start to actually have honest conversations about that and those honest conversations i think will help women who really dislike or feel disgusted or harmed even by that male attention to kind of really understand what it's actually about so there's more yeah. room to discuss that. Uh, yeah. yeah. That would be really interesting. If you can get um, a couple of researchers or people that have studied that type of thing to sit down and have a conversation about it so it's not just some like random person that's like, let's talk about what it's like to be a man. If you could get the, the study <laughs> done of it where it's like, no, there's an actual biological basis for this, then I think people would be more apt to take it seriously. You've talked to Michael Bailey, right? Yeah. I should have him back on. He's cool. Yeah, you should. He's a Chad. Um, But I know he did those studies with um, uh, like male versus female arousal patterns. I've always thought that that was super interesting. That was one of the things that kind of opened my eyes to like there's so much more biologically going on that doesn't really get covered in the social construct side of the conversation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. So it's uh, 
there's one study in particular that I always think back to, but I know he's done like um, a series, like many studies over the course of his career into male sexuality and female sexuality. But um, basically it's just arousal patterns. So men will only become physically aroused to the sex that their sexuality is aroused by. So straight men will not see, will not feel, um, or will be a lot less likely to feel rather, um, physical arousal from sexual imagery of another man. And gay men will be a lot less likely to feel sexual, physical sexual arousal from sexual imagery of a woman. But with women, with the exception, I think, being lesbians to a, a greater degree, like there's, I'll just explain the first part, sorry. Um, so women, straight women, will feel physical sexual arousal signs to men, but they can also feel those sexual arousal signs towards women. And same with um, bisexual women. Obviously, they will feel like sexual arousal towards men and women. And then lesbians, it's like some percentage of lesbians will continue to feel sexual arousal responses to sexual imagery of men, but a higher percentage of lesbians have a more male-typical arousal pattern where they only experience physical arousal signs to other women. So there is kind of, like, there's something going on there. That was a... That's interesting. Shitty explanation. What did you say the name was? Maple <laughs> Bailey. Bailey. MJ Bailey, B-A-I-L-Y. On Twitter. I can show Yeah, you. no. Prof MBJ. Yeah. Yeah. Um, out of left field, I don't know why I want to ask this, but do either of you have mindfulness, spirituality, or religious inclinations that have helped ground you or... Uh, uh, she lifts the cores, so I guess that's. The- <laughs> I mean, I could may- maybe go with mindful because even though I haven't spoken about this on Twitter much, um, when I was um, in, a, in a really really bad way trying to sort of deal with detransition and stuff like that, I started listening to Stoicism audiobooks and stuff. Um, so that that's the closest I could get, but I'm not religious or spiritual in any way. I yeah. don't believe in in like gods or fairies or anything like that <laughs> <laughs> what what did you get out of this stoicism how did that uh help you it was i don't know it was in particular if you listen to the audiobook of marcus aurelius meditations um it was it was the message of you know there's a lot of things that happen in life that you don't have control over and yeah you're naturally going to respond negatively to negative things that happen to you but if you have no control over it and it's happened then why are you going to sabotage yourself by continually feeling negative towards it? And he obviously, he will word it much better than I can. Um, but it, it, it gave me the little seed in my head where I was like, you know, sometimes I stay awake at night at three o'clock in the morning, tossing and turning, thinking about things that happened 10 years ago. Like, why? You know, what's that achieving and blah 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 and it's easy to say it like that but when you sit and think about it and you're like well do you know what that horrible thing happened but maybe that was something where if it didn't happen it would have changed something slightly and so my life would have went in a different direction and I would be a completely different person now because even though you know we all have trials and we all have very nasty things that happen to us at some point but if you're happy in yourself now which I am you know I'm, I'm uh, very stable, I'm in a loving relationship, things are going really well. I don't want my life to be any different right now. So yeah. I'm accepting the bad things that have happened because maybe if they didn't happen or they happened in a different way, I wouldn't have the good things that I have right now. Yeah. You know, you know, I told that to my sister and she was like, you're talking out your arse. So I was like, no, you know, it makes sense to me, you know, because if, if you constantly drill yourself over the, the negative emotions and feelings that you have because we all have them um, then you're going to spend so much time focusing on that that you're not going to be focusing on the good that you have and feeling gratitude for the mm-hmm. good that you have you know if you'll allow the, the clown talk feeds your soul and mm-hmm. helps you move on and you know because I, if I had just sat there and thought you know I'm so miserable and depressed and I hate myself like where would I be right now? Like, I would either not be here or I'd be a mess. I'm much happier yeah. that I can sit here and say, I'm really happy right now. And it's because um, I, do, I try my best. Sometimes I fail, but I try not to dwell on the shit that I can't change because I can't change it. Yeah. Basically, yeah. 
Yeah. I think going off of that, there's a lot of things that we can change. And the more you do put in that little bit of effort followed by another little bit of effort followed by another little bit of effort and you start to see those slow changes that changes you fundamentally because you no longer feel completely powerless you kind of start to understand what you can do and that you actually can affect your life and so i think that can kind of lead you out of that depressed self-pitying self-loathing state because you start to feel like you can actually do something do you know, it was actually um, reading, this is going to sound very cliche, but I'll see what you think. Um, it was reading Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Yeah. Um, it literally made me get, I, I cleaned my room and I had a shower and I brushed my teeth and I didn't yeah. drink that day. And it's so, for it sounds so silly because people are like, real depression can't be fixed that easily. And it's like, well, it didn't fix it, but it, it put my mind into a less shitty place. And then the next day, a slightly less shitty place and then the next day and then then you get to a point where you're like okay I'm now in a space where I feel comfortable tackling the bigger problems but you need to start really small um so when when I was at my worst I mean you would have been sick if you saw the flat I was staying in there was plates of moldy food everywhere I hadn't yeah. washed or showered in a long time I hadn't eaten I was like I was the, I looked like a fucking hobo living at a junkyard it was dis, it was yeah. disgusting and so I've that, been there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we all have. Um, yeah. But it's at that stage where that first little step where I just washed the dishes and mm-hmm. had a shower for the first time in months, probably, at that stage. You, The mentality isn't just, oh, I've completely fixed my life. The mentality is, you know what, I feel a little better from that tiny thing, so if I keep doing that one day, I will feel better and my life will mm-hmm. get better. Because there's mm-hmm. no such thing as the magical fix. You know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not going to be easy. You're not going to fix your life in one night, but you can start fixing mm-hmm. your life. Mm-hmm. And you can set yourself up for success in a way, make yourself a little bit stronger by doing those little things to take care of yourself and just make your time easier because you're going to have a better time if you're not looking at a bunch of moldy shit all over your floor. And you're going to have a better time if you're not stinky and itchy from not having taken a shower. And that mm-hmm. will set you up to feel stronger and more capable. And, and I think down the road, when you repeatedly put in little bits of effort into things like that, it makes you more capable. Mm. And it gives you your, self-respe- uh, your self-respect back, which was oh, yeah. a massively huge part in my healing, yeah. was learning that I'm not a piece of shit. And in fact, I'm actually not a bad person. So, you know. Yeah, 100%. Well, it starts small. You start dealing with your body and then you start dealing with your, I guess, your day. You're, you get a schedule, etc. Then maybe you get a closet in, in Helena's case or, or a flat. Yeah. yeah, you get to sit in your clean closet or, or in your flat with your birds and then you have a boyfriend or not, whatever. But as those go bigger and bigger and bigger, you're like, well, what do I do now? What do I do now? What do I do now? You, you start to expand, start to deal mm-hmm. with the world. Mm-hmm. That's the question. What, what do you guys want to do outside of yourself now that you're all sorted out? What, what is your attention going into nowadays? What are you building, making? Well, I wouldn't consider myself sorted out by any means. Um, I'm just better than I was a few years ago. So I've still got a lot more sorting out to do. So I'm still sorting. Every day I sort, I just wake up and sort. Um, but also, I I don't know, I I do think a lot about like the, the trans stuff, the trans issue. And I get a lot of fulfillment from sharing my perspective on it to people who might have not heard it before and want to listen. I, yeah. I feel like I'm doing a very good thing when I do that. How does that manifest? What do you mean? How do you get, what do you do to do that? Oh, like do podcasts, um, just have conversations with people one-on-one. Um, I've done a speaking engagement at this point. Um, so yeah. And just, I guess when, when it comes up in conversation, it usually turns out to be a very fruitful conversation where it does connect to that person's life in some way. Like, 
you'd be surprised. Well, maybe you wouldn't. How many people have loved ones who are going through similar things, and they f- they find it very useful to hear my perspective. Um, yeah, and also just tweeting, <laughs> raising awareness. I guess I don't know. I I do feel like it's making a difference. But definitely, you're one of the names that are constantly brought up to me when people message me, and they're like, "Do you know who Kira Bell and Helena are?" Like, <laughs> both of them are, yes. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I mean, you, you, I, I saw from your body language there that you felt a bit silly saying that you tweet, but actually, like, you shouldn't feel silly in any way because I mean, how you probably got like sixteen thousand people following you and listening to you. How many of those people um, were in a really shitty place and then they read something that you said and was like, Do you know what, she's right, and and I relate to that and I felt that, and if she can do it, then I can as well. Like, it's it's. Thank you. Yeah, like, don't downplay it at all, seriously, because it, all Thank it you. takes is one person to say, um, you know, I'm not alone anymore. And with more and more detransitioners speaking out, because I don't know about you, but when I started detransition, there was barely any of them speaking publicly. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, oh, so we are a tiny minority. And then more came out and more came out and more came out. And I'm in groups that have, like, dozens of detransitioners in them. And it's like, yeah, so what? I'm not going to fucking keep my mouth shut anymore because I know we're not a tiny minority. I've spoken mm-hmm. to them. I've heard what's going on and they motivate me to keep speaking, which, as you know, you'll get messages of people thanking you for speaking. So, yeah, it's a really good thing. Thank you. Thank you. We're we're both doing good things. Sinead, you got a book in the works or <laughs> are you thinking about starting up another YouTube channel like you did so um, effectively back in the day? Oh, God, I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> you're, I bring it up because you're a talent, not because you're content. <laughs> um, well, I don't know, because like, I've considered it and stuff like that, more so because um, I no longer have a job. I'm currently unemployed, so I'm looking for ways to fill up my time. And I was like, um, you know, maybe I'll make a YouTube fucking video or whatever. But I think because I spent so long going through things, and now that I've found a nice plateau where, um, like, because you were saying, when you get happy, then there's the next set where it's like, what do I want to do next? What do I want to do next? That will come for me eventually, but I think I'll be happy just spending, you know, a year, you know, just being not in pain anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, because it's, it's like if you're a homeless guy, all you want is a sandwich. And then you get your sandwich. And like, I don't want a sandwich. I want a roof over my head. And then they get the roof over your head. And in fact, no, I want my own house. And then you want a job. And then you want a partner. And then you want children and blah, blah, blah. So I no doubt at some point my mind will be like, I need another big thing to aim towards. But for now, I'm happy to be very lazy and just enjoy where I've got to. <laughs> well, you both are very, very effective writers. Uh, and I, I just, I have to encourage at least an op-ed or or two every now and then um, when you guys feel the lightning strike uh, and infuse you. Is there any fun hobbies? Sinead, do you have birds? Yes. Helena, what's the weirdest hobby that you're into lately? Do you have something completely off the wall? Like what's that one where there's a mallet and you whack the ball on a lawn? It was in Alice in Wonderland. It's not cricket. Croquet. 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 Yeah, something left fieldy. I'm not into croquet, but I guess perhaps the weirdest would be maybe like, I listen to a lot of Russian music. Really? Yeah. Like like pop music or traditional or? No, not traditional, like rock music. There's a, there's a big rock scene in Russia and it's very epic. Like they just, it kind of sounds like kind of like emo or like post emo whatever but just with like a a snazzy little russian twist to it so i don't know maybe i'll (laughs) send you i have a russian playlist and you can dabble in the russian music but i do Um, love russian music (laughs) i'll I'll definitely link that for everybody i I can't post it in the video or else it'll get uh it'll get all gummed up in the youtube algorithm but I yeah, people need some rush heavy mail. <laughs> yeah, there's there's good stuff. Like the people need to wake up to the Russia. 
people need to wake up. <laughs> does it does it make you dance or run or or start uh, you know dealing with uh, your feet somehow with like one of those like file feet files or something like that? What what's what what is it? <laughs> What does it inspire your body to do? Well, it's a little bit frustrating since I don't speak Russian. I speak Polish, but I don't speak Russian, so I can't sing along to any of it. Um, so there's kind of like a little bit of a... I assume this is how K-pop fans feel, where it's like, I love the song and I really want to get into it, but I literally don't know how to sing along. So I'm kind of like just vocally constipated a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I get down. I dance to Russian music it's good stuff hmm. that's probably my weirdest hobby <laughs> is there any anybody you guys want to plug or any uh, resources you think uh of course aside both of you uh where i will link people to but is there somebody that you've, you're finding a lot of inspiration in or you think is doing really good work? I, w I would like to put a shout out to the um gender through a wider lens podcast done by yeah Ali and Sasha oh my God, yeah. Yeah, I I totally because I listened to most of it and then I was like they haven't put anything out for a while and then I went to their Twitter feed and they'd put out three more podcasts and I was like, Why hasn't that been popping up in my feed? So I just sat and binged the last three and the last two in particular were wonderful. So I'd very They're much brilliant. to give them a shout out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I shout that out too. There's something brilliant. pretty special coming down the pipe starring Sasha uh, that should be dropping in the next couple of weeks or so. It's totally, Aww. totally great. Because um, uh, you've, you've be spoken YouTube. to Sasha already, haven't you? Have you spoken to Stella? I'm going to have Sasha on on Thursday again. We haven't had a conversation in quite some time. We kind of do it semi-regularly. And I've had Stella on once and then Sasha and Stella to launch their podcast. They're both wonderful, wonderful women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, ladies, I'm going to uh, end the recording. Thank you so much for joining my channel and uh, leavening the uh, radical feminism that I've been uh, exploring with some young female points of view. It was my pleasure. Yes. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> there we go. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.